Welcome back to Winning with Connections, the WWC Global Podcast. We have a special guest today in honor of Military Appreciation Month. And there is actually a Military Spouse Appreciation Day. Elizabeth Jameson joins us. She's one of the busiest military spouses we know. She has, in her career as a military spouse, started off as an attorney, ended up working with us on Homefront Rising to encourage military spouses to engage in civic engagement and run for office. She's worked on the Hill. She's worked with Joining Forces. And she's just generally a leader. Libby, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. So Lauren and I met Libby years ago when she was involved in an organization called the Military Spouse JD Network. Libby, can you tell us about that? Absolutely. As a military spouse attorney, I was really struggling to figure out how to to navigate my life and career and doing that without having to go through the painful process of taking the bar exam every time my husband was stationed in a new state. And I happened to stumble across MSJDN, a fantastic organization of fellow military spouses in the legal field. And I came in really early on And it was an exciting time when we were all kind of coming together to advocate for rule changes with the states to give us a waiver, to give military spouses a waiver on some of the licensing requirements if they were only moving to a state because of military orders. But it, and we were really successful on the licensing front. I think it's up to 42 states now have some kind of licensing waiver in place for military spouse attorney professionals. I'm sorry, I want to give the listeners context here. So oh. us attorneys, when we married into the military, if we were members of a particular state bar and then the military moved our spouse to another state and we went with our active duty troop, we needed to take the bar again in that state. And this was this endless scenario for, you know, every three years when you had to move in PCS with the military. So I don't want to gloss over the magnitude of what you all at MSJDN accomplished. I mean, when you say you change the rules, you're talking about really going to each bar in each state and convincing them that military spouses should be waived in and get reciprocity from whichever state they were already accepted in and the bar that they were already accepted in. This was a sea change. Absolutely. Yes. And it was, you're right. I think it's easy to look back now and say 42 states and we did it and what a success. But that was years and years in the making of going to these meetings, telling our stories, talking to the bar leaders and really challenging them to say, you support military families. We know you want to support military families. Here we are telling you what we need. And what we need is the ability to maintain a second income and build our own careers. And that is incredibly challenging when you are moving every two to three years, just in any job, right? Like any position that could be a challenge to uproot yourself, move somewhere that you don't have a network, find somebody that is willing to take a chance on you when they may not know you or anybody um, in your network. But then you add on that extra layer of something like the bar exam 
which is the bar exam is only offered twice a year. You may not get your military orders in time to register for the next one. So it's just this cycle that really contributes to the incredibly high unemployment rate that we have seen for military spouses, you know, 20 plus percent unemployment for at least a decade, probably much longer. And so these licensing pieces are really important. And I'll say it's not just attorneys. I think that's the world we come from, but this affects so many folks, nurses, teachers, Mm -hmm. um, cosmetologists, right? Like that licensing piece can be a real challenge across the board. And so convincing the state to accept military spouses as competent took a lot of work, but I think telling our stories was really vital to that, to show that we are competent and we are capable and they should accept us. And especially now in the, you know, with some of the workforce challenges we see now, I think employers and the states should be doing everything they can to relax some of those, those barriers and make it easier for folks to find employment when they relocate. And I really credit you guys, MSJDM, for sort of starting this movement of, of recognizing that there are military spouses that are licensed and that are unable to practice their profession or their trade as they move around from state to state. I know we were always offered, you know, volunteer roles or roles as paralegals or whatever. And a lot of us have a lot of uh, student debt, especially from law school or whatever school where we, we got our degree. And these days now, there's a movement towards professional licensing, interstate professional licensing packs, where different states, because again, all this licensure is, is controlled at the state level, will recognize each other's licensure when a military-affiliated person comes into the state. Are you involved in that? Absolutely. Yeah, I think the the packs, the compacts are a really great way to do it where you know a number of states can come together and really reduce those barriers by saying we are going to recognize you know this pod of 15 states someone can move around you know pretty interchangeably within that compact and what we've seen is really great progress DOD their state liaison office has done some incredible work on this but Getting states, you know, the first step was getting them to recognize, like I was saying, that military spouses are competent and capable and can come in and really contribute to the workforce. But just getting them to recognize the license was the first step. It still could take a long time for them to process. There could be really high fees. It can still be a challenge to transfer that license. And the compacts have been really helpful in reducing some of those issues. And making it, you know, the goal is really, can a spouse come in and transfer that license in, say, 30 days with a minimum minimal fee and really reduce some of those barriers so folks can get back to work um, as quickly as possible after a relocation? It's fantastic. And we're seeing a lot of progress made here in Florida on that. Yeah. And the other thing I would say about MSJDN, I think the licensing piece is really powerful. But, you know, the connections we make and the support between members of the group of the network is really incredible. And, you know, I connected with you guys and we have stayed in touch and become friends and gone on to do other things together. 
And I think that is really one of the parts I really treasure about MSJDN is we made incredible progress and, you know, changed these rules. And I think that is really exciting to see, you know, we've been able to see that impact spouses using these rules and the, the doors that opens for them and their, their families. But some of those personal relationships and the networking that goes on um, is, I would say, just as important as changing those licensing barriers. I, I, I agree. And I, I can tell you for Lauren and me meeting each other on base and knowing that there were others out there like us that were frustrated because, you know, we couldn't practice our professions was a total game changer. And having that, that sort of cadre of people going through the same thing with you for Lauren and me, the original idea was to be able to hand off the batons for military spouses to be able to hand off their jobs to incoming military spouses via Endear Career, which became the Military Spouse Professional Network, Hiring Our Heroes, or you guys, this joint objective of changing the rules in the 50 states became such a, a bonding thing. And it, you know, it really reminds me of the power of community among military spouses, because, you know, most of us, I think, when our active duty troop departs, we're busy taking care of all the logistics and, and all of the rest of it. And a lot of the emotional labor, a lot of times, you know, just managing relationships and whatnot. It could be very weird when the the active duty spouse is coming, is going, and then your whole life changes. I think having a organization of women who are all, and it was largely women, it's a lot of men now too, who are all experiencing that together made a huge difference. I saw it in all of our lives and and in and, and the lives of the MSJDN members. Yeah. And we did surveying, you know, would survey the members annually and ask, you know, what is the most important aspect of MSJDN? Is it the licensing work that we're doing? Is it the opportunity to have maybe a meaningful volunteer opportunity when you can't find employment? Is it, you know, the network, have you used the network to find a job? Or is it just knowing that you're not alone and being able to connect with other people who have a similar story and career path and life path as you? And, you know, that that personal connection would always be one of the top answers, which I just think is really telling for that need. You know, it can be really lonely to be moving and landing in that place again, where you don't know anybody, maybe, you know, a few folks through your spouse's squadron or command or whatever it might be, but it's a challenge to go back to your emotional labor piece. You know, it's a challenge to move the family and I don't have kids, but I can only imagine, you know, I have to find the new hairstylist and the dog, you know, the doggy daycare yeah, but then the new schools and the childcare and all of that and balancing that on top of the career piece so that being able to find other spouses in your same profession, um, going through a lot of those same issues is just incredibly, incredibly important. I will tell you, sorry, I've been listening to to all of this and, and reminiscing on some of the stuff that you guys have been doing for holy moly, 10 years, 10, 12 years. I, I don't even, I can't keep track of time anymore. But, you know, one of the things that strikes me about the licensing, and then I want to move on to a couple of other things. But one of the things that strikes me about the licensing that that you guys didn't talk about is that every state had a different process. Right. And so it was, if you were sitting in Ohio, that was 
that was one process. If you were in Maryland, it was an entirely different process to get the reciprocity and then also for, for you guys to get the reciprocity in place, but then also for the spouses to get the reciprocity through. And I remember a call at one point because most of it was through the bar association or the bar, the, the, the state bar. But like Michigan had to go through the legislature and, you know, Luckily, there was Jocelyn Benson was was over there kind of helping to coordinate it. And I think a couple of other people. And then my cousin was was in the legislature and we got it through the legislature in the middle of a snowstorm. But like <laughs> and Donna pointed this out, but just to, to kind of hit it home again is what you guys did in taking. I don't even think there were more than a couple of states that had some reciprocity that certainly wasn't around military spouses. but could be used by military spouses, taking that to, to the 42 states that now have it, it was a behemoth lift. And it was basically just a bunch of really frustrated military spouses. And when you get military spouses who have something behind them that they need to get done, man, they get it done. Which brings me to the, the Homefront Rising stuff that we did together, which is, I think one of the things I am most proud of in the last 15 years that I've done, and I certainly was not by far the one doing the heavy lifting on it, but we realized, and you were part of that early, early, early group moving home from rising forward, that, yeah, you get military spouses started on something and there's no stopping what they can do. And so maybe we should take that energy, we should take that advocacy, we should take what we've we've been able to do as military spouses and apply it and teach military spouses to apply it even more effectively to politics and policy and advocacy. So I remember you in the in the very first home front rising jumped in and I think did most of the heavy lifting, I'm gonna say, to pull that that home front rising. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the the start of home front rising, what we did and where we've taken it to now? Because you've basically up until the last year or so, you've basically led it and kept it going. So I will give the shout out to you about all the stuff that you've done. Can you talk a little bit about what we did? Well, I can talk about it, but I think you guys should tell the story, the shutdown story about how the idea even came to be in the first place. That I, Donna, Mary and I were sitting around a table in which hotel was it, Donna? It was down on Capitol Hill. I can I can picture the lobby, but I can't think of which one it was. It was Women Impacting Public Policy event, and there were, it was during the shutdown, and there were staffers from the House and Senate, both Republican and Democrat, sitting on a panel and pointing fingers at each other. It's their fault. No, it's their fault. It's the House's fault. No, it's the Senate's fault. Democrats, no, it's the Republicans. And there were people standing up and saying, I can't pay my employees. These were business owners within the government contracting arena. And they were like, I'm not getting paid. I can't pay my staff. You know, there was a a couple of people in Afghanistan that were, or Iraq, I don't remember which at the time, who were either severely injured or killed during the shutdown and they couldn't give survivor benefits. And so Fisher House had to step in and cover the immediate costs for the families to get out to Longstool to get the the burial, the the initial kind of payment 
that comes for those first couple of days to get through everything. And, and our government couldn't pay for that. And, and I remember sitting around, Donna, we were, we were taught, we were watching C-SPAN with Mary and screaming at yeah. the TV. Yeah. Cause we, we just heard those representatives say that they're all, you know, engrossed in this, in this conflict that they didn't see a resolution to and real people were getting affected. And so we kind of looked at each other. I still do to this day, truly do not remember who said it. But somebody said, forget it. I don't I don't want to call my congressman or woman. I want to be my congressman. And we went, wait a second. Can we do that? Can we can we make military spouses the Congress people? Because they're going to understand this a whole lot better. And maybe, maybe they will be a little less partisan. And maybe they will be a little more conscious of kind of that servant leadership. And so. I think you got brought in within a couple of days, Libby, and you were off to the races with the rest of us. We had a Facebook, private Facebook group going and we got, man, that that first home front rising was amazing. Yeah. And it I mean, it's absolutely been a team effort since the that very first one, which did come together very quickly. Um, I think we had what, maybe 80 military spouses come in from all corners of the country for just an incredible day of education from leaders on the Hill. I remember we had Tammy Duckworth, who else? I mean, we had an incredible lineup of of folks who were already serving in Congress coming to speak and then experts on, you know, everything from fundraising to comms to everything you would need to know um, to to get involved. And I think that success and the energy and the interest that we saw that first year then just really fueled us from that point on to say, I, I think there is still a lot of stigma in the military spouse community that, you know, we are the dependents and you're the trailing spouse. And to be able to really lift up spouses and say, you are leaders, you have this incredible lived experience. And that experience is important in places like the halls of Congress, and not just Congress. I think we always said from the beginning, you know, the state houses and school board and one of our first folks, if I remember correctly, Angelina Bradley went out and advocated to get a seat on one of the DC school district boards specifically to represent military families. So it really is from the school board to the Senate, military spouses have that um, on the ground experience that is critical and is often overlooked. I have to say today, I was looking at listings for jobs on the Hill and there's, I think it's a legislative, a military, you know, legislative assistant opening. And it said military service mandatory. And it made steam come out of my ears because we know that spouses have, you know, we are not the ones that have served in uniform, but there are so many pieces to that national security discussion about how we continue to maintain an all volunteer force that military spouses are absolutely equipped to have those conversations and lead on those issues. And that is what Homefront Rising was about. And it was just, 
absolutely an honor to work on that and see military spouses step up and lead after attending. What amazed me that, as, as you said, that first win we had where there was no representation on the school board, I think it was Virginia and Fort Bowling, right? Or Joint Base Bowling Anacostia, where yeah. they didn't have any representation and nobody had ever thought to have military representation on the appointed school board. And it was raising your hand and saying, wait a second, you've got more students here. This is the based on impact date. I think that was the most impacted school district or one of the most impacted school districts in the country on military, you know, but with military school age children and to not have any voice of the military family. That was pretty cool. That was almost within a couple of weeks, I think, after that first home front rising. So that was a big win. But then we've had state, you know, local, we've got people on both sides of the aisle and and nonpartisan. We've got Jocelyn Benson in in Michigan, who just got a award from the Kennedy Foundation. And we've got Tiffany Smalley running for U.S. Senate, who's, you know, military caregiver, military spouse, and caregiver to a wounded veteran, all the way down to, like you said, school board races, state house races. Mayors. Yep. Mayors. And truly above and beyond that, the advocacy piece, right? The, The working on the Hill piece. We've got a bunch of people who are working on the Hill now, and they're recognizing what military spouses bring to the table that is different than a military member themselves or or a veteran. And so I really feel like that that first one was rah rah, you can do it. I mean it was wait, nobody's ever had this conversation before. But then since then we I think we've we've changed the conversation so that it now becomes, okay, how do you do it? Libby, you wrote for your dissertation or or capstone project, whatever it was, you wrote a manual for military yeah, spouses. I was going to put in a plug for our friends at Veterans Campaign who have been great partners, especially to your point on some of the nuts and bolts pieces. You know, we don't need to replicate some of the great trainings and programs that are out there. And so we've been able to partner with folks like She Should Run and Veterans Campaign to get people through, you know, into their programs as well. And I was fortunate enough to take part in the veterans campaign. Folks partnered with University of San Francisco for a master's program in public leadership and really focused on veterans and military spouses participating in that program. And so, yeah, as my capstone project, I wrote the military spouses guide to running for office. You can Google it. It's up there for free. And I'm obviously slightly biased, but I think it gives some really good advice on storytelling. How do you craft your story as a military spouse candidate, fundraising, time management, all of those pieces. And but also talks about, you know, again, to your point, I think Homefront Rising kind of started with that thought around running for office and serving, but has really expanded around public leadership and public service broadly to be inclusive of serving on the Hill, 
working in government, being an advocate. I think there are just so many channels and ways that spouses can lead. And it's absolutely not limited to running for office, which can be a challenge, especially when you are, you know, in this mobile lifestyle. And so maybe that's a lot for a military spouse who's listening right now to wrap their mind around. But you can start serving on boards and building that resume and be thinking about getting ready to, you know, you don't have to run tomorrow. You can be building towards that. And so I really love that Homefront Rising has kind of embraced that whole world of public service. What I love about it is it started with a basic conversation about like, well, this is just stupid, which honestly is, (laughs) you know, half of the conversations I have a lot. And I think a lot of us do this is stupid. Why can't we fix it? And I think, again, you put a military spouse on something and they go, well, that's just stupid. Can we fix this? And and a lot of people will stop there, right? But I think a lot of the lessons you learn in the military community are just put your head down and get it done, or you're not, you know, you can complain about it, but if you don't plow through it, it's not going to get fixed and you're going to get hurt. And so we just did that. We didn't know where this was going to end up. You know, I certainly didn't in talk in that first conversation, know that we were going to pull off an 80 person conference. What, three months later with five or six sitting Congress people, the DNC, the RNC were there. Like we didn't know that. We just were like, let's see what we can pull off here. And then we just took every step, one more step and just, well, could we do this? Okay, how do we do this? What else is existing? Right? Like, we don't have to come up, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. Veterans Campaign has done a phenomenal job of this. You know, hey, Veterans Campaign, would you be open to military spouses coming in? And they were like, yeah. And so they've got a great training program. We don't have to redo it. But we were at each step, it was like, okay, let's take the next step. Let's see where this leads us. So to me, that. That's the same story of military spouses is just, just get it done. Just put your head down and get it done. And that's why they make not only great politicians or great advocates or great government workers or, you know, senior leaders or whatever, but that's why we hire that, right? Because they just plow through stuff and get it done. So that's, I I think, I know there's a lot that I'm really proud of around uh, Homefront Rising, But that's, I think, one of the things is just we just proved what military spouses could do. And then all of them took it and ran with it and took it to different places than we ever would have ourselves. It was so much more than the sum of its parts. And I think it goes back to what we were talking about with MSJDN and discovering that you are not the only one on this journey. Yes. And, oh, look, there's other military spouses out here who are making a career work as an attorney or they are successfully advocating in their state. And so, you know, for military spouses to be able to see examples like Nikki Haley, who mm-hmm. was a governor while her husband served in the National Guard or a Jocelyn Benson or, you know, the many folks that we have have lifted up through Homefront Rising. You know, once you see it, see somebody else in your community doing it and then believe that you can do it. I just it's so incredibly empowering. I couldn't agree more. And it's been 
really fun to watch so many people take off and run with it. I mean, the original people, and I, I forget who was there originally, but every once in a while I'll talk to somebody and they'll, you know, that that's now a, kind of a leader in the community in the military spouse community. And they'll be like, yeah, you know, I was at that original home for a Oh, that's right. You were. And that's what started them out on that path. Or that's what kind of coalesced them into government service as opposed to kind of, you know, regular kind of business jobs or whatever. And I mean, I know a couple of them have said, you know, I didn't think I could do anything as a military spouse. And to be able to see, I mean, I'll call out Amy Bontrager as, as one of the, one of my favorite examples of that. Cause she came in from, I think she was living in Fort Polk at the time. <laughs> I find a job, couldn't do anything. We got her out to home front rising. Now she's leading all sorts of White House initiatives through, you know, both Democrat and Republican administrations really running stuff. And it came from that inspiration of that being around this village of spouses and being able to see here's the opportunities, here's the path forward, and then getting the connections and getting the the people turning around and saying, okay, let me let me bring you up with me. And that really was remarkable. I mean, it really was truly remarkable. I, again, maybe we're patting ourselves on the back too much here, but it really, I think it has changed, uh, it's changed the conversation in ways that I'm really proud of. And we should put in a plug because the next Homefront Rising is coming up on May 13th and 14th in partnership with Veterans Campaign. They're going to be talking. I think this session is going to be focused on finances and campaigning. And so folks can visit the MSJDN website and find out all the information about joining that next session. That's awesome. That's, I got to tell you, it's also awesome that I didn't have anything to do with the planning of it, nor did anyone that started this thing. <laughs> it's awesome that the next generation is taking this over and running with it and making That's it when you know it's been a success. That makes me happy. But yeah, this has been going, what, eight years now? Seven years? Eight? Because it was yeah, May. Eight years. Yep. 2014, right? So that sounds yeah. right. That's unreal. So yeah. So I think, you know, we've been talking a lot about kind of where military spouses can take things, where you go, where you can make a difference. And you've lived this for the last 10 years, really in changing the conversation. It's really great. I know you've worked with both Republican and Democratic administrations through this whole thing. And to have the support of the current White House, previous White House, previous White House before that, around these issues has also been really helpful and and in ways that I'll tell you when when we started WWC, we're just not there. So getting this visibility really has been instrumental as well. And I think as much as the White House, each of the White Houses themselves have done it well, it's only from the advocacy of the military spouses raising the issue that I think that that became an issue that they seized upon as well. Yeah. And I think it's a really exciting time, especially on the employment front. And we've seen the current iteration of joining forces kind of pushed on the remote 
and flexible jobs piece and taking what we've learned through, you know, the last few years of struggling to, to adapt to, to COVID in the workplace. But I think that can, you know, can we take those lessons learned and apply those to tackling the incredibly high unemployment rate that, that we see with military spouses and use remote work to bring that portability and flexibility to employers. And that impl- uh, applies to government employers as well. I'm incredibly fortunate in my, my day job to work for Department of Veterans Affairs in a fully remote position that has allowed me to go you know, from DC to San Diego and back and forth again and maintain my job and get promoted for the first time and get a raise and all of those things that that never happened when I was trying to piece together a career before. So I think it's exciting to see, like you said, that that support um, that is continuing across administrations. And I really hope that we can take that momentum backed by the advocacy, as you said, of the military spouses that continue to work on these these issues. I know there's a lot of folks in this space who have really been tackling this for years, but I'm hopeful that we can really make a dent in that unemployment rate with, with the momentum we've got going on here. Well, I, me too. I, I will say, Libby, as always happens whenever Donna and I get to talk to you, I think we could go on for another and maybe like you know solve all the world's problems within that time but yes (laughs) and it is always really fun to to catch up as well any last minute thoughts for our listeners in terms of you know like donna said in celebrating the military appreciation month in celebrating military spouse appreciation day any last thoughts for for our listeners on where we're going and where we should be going now? Yeah, I mean, I think supporting military families is a national security imperative. And mm. I think a lot of folks don't think of it in that way. But if we want to continue to maintain an all-volunteer force, we have to support military families and make sure that their kids are supported in the classrooms and spouses can we you know have fulfilling careers and people may think that there's not a way for them to engage in supporting national security maybe you don't build submarines or <laughs> airplanes but there is a way for everyone to support families in their communities and you know i would say we have there are national guard and reserve members everywhere. You don't have to live near a military base to support a military family. And it doesn't have to be, you know, hiring. I hope everybody will hire a military spouse after listening to this and the, you know, incredible leadership and skill set that military spouses come with. But it really can be as simple as, you know, offering to carpool or helping someone find that new dentist. I mean, there are so many ways to help a family feel settled in a new community and supported and help them navigate the challenges that come with this this mobile lifestyle. So I hope folks will think about that this month. And, you know, even a small action can be really meaningful for a military family. 
Amen. With that, I think we really appreciate, Libby, all of your time, not just on this podcast, but all of your efforts throughout. And I am grateful to you taking and running the torch on, on Homefront Rising, on MSJDN and the licensure issues and all the other issues you've advocated for over the last decade. We as a country are better for your efforts and the efforts of, of our whole village around military spouses. So thank you for that. And thank you for, for joining us today. Oh my gosh. And ditto to you guys. And also I need you to follow me around and be my hype squad everywhere I go. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. You got it. You don't Uh, need it. You don't need it. Your reputation precedes you. Absolutely. (laughs)